Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. Welcome, welcome SF listeners back to another episode of the Social Fishing Podcast. I'm super excited because this is episode 50. We've hit the half century mark and we started back in August 2019 and I want to thank every single one of you for downloading an episode of the podcast. We want to create educational content for you, interview great anglers and help you guys become better anglers when it comes to freshwater fishing. Now, this is episode 50, as I mentioned, and I'm interviewing a legend of an Aussie bloke, Matt Scrooper. Now, this is just a chat between two blokes who love fishing and I basically interview Matt and he tells us all about his lifestyle, early life, how he fell into hunting and fishing and why he loves adventure. Uh, We talk a lot about stories. He tells a lot of stories, uh, different scenarios of just random stories which are really interesting to hear and basically some of the questions that we talk or some of the questions I asked Matt are what's his favorite style of fishing, uh, why he has such a passion and love for wildlife, the outdoors, his early life, uh, also what he carries in his backpack because he spends a lot of time on foot and we talk about some of his native adventures and stories and then also some of his stories are on targeting that meter plus barrel which he has wanted to achieve for some time. So it's a really, really genuine chat with a bloke who just loves the outdoors, loves fishing and just basically does what he enjoys and what he wants, gets out there and lives his life to the fullest. So this is a chat, a bit of entertainment for you guys on a drive or if you're at work and I hope you enjoy and get a bit of entertainment from this episode and hope hopefully learn a thing or two from Matt. Now, before this episode starts and you continue to listen, take a screenshot of the app you are listening to it on or take a photo of the computer if you're listening to it from our website and post it on your Instagram story and tag Matt and myself so we both know that you're listening. You can also leave a rating and a review over at Apple Podcasts and every review and rating helps us out greatly. So, please leave those ratings, comments and reviews for the podcast. That's enough from me, guys, so let's jump in and chat with the one, the only, Matt Scrooper about living the adventure lifestyle. Welcome back to the episode, everyone. I'm super excited. This is going to be a good chat, more of a laid-back chat, talking about life, adventure, fishing, hunting. Matt Scrooper, I have on the line, mate. Thanks for joining me. I'm, I'm keen. It's going to be good. Thanks very much for having me on, Reese. I really appreciate it, mate. Um, Looking forward to this chat myself. Yeah, yeah. And you said you've never even done anything like this before, but I'm sure we're going to have fun. We're just going to talk a bit about fishing stuff, uh, a bit of hunting. So if if you guys are listening and you just want to hear a good chat, it's going to be good. Now, I'm keen to hear some of the things you've got to say, Matt, because you live a pretty busy life. Um, Can you tell us why, first question of all, I want to go back and talk about sort of your history and how it all started, but why, like, Based on your social media profiles and um, from other things I've read that you've written and that, you've got a real adventure-based lifestyle. Do you, do you have... Is it just a passion of yours that you fell into? Can you tell us how that all started and why? Because a lot of people will... A lot of people I talk to on this podcast, it's kind of... They're just fishos, but you just seem to love the outdoors, yeah? 100%, mate. You've hit the nail on the head there. Um, 
I guess it probably all started like most most other blokes or guys and girls um, in the fishing and outdoor world with the old man. Um, yeah. From a young age, I can remember my dad dragging me, the two, me two sisters, and mum around the countryside fishing, doing dabbling in hunting. You know, like rabbits, foxes, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, bait fishing, four wheel driving, camping, bushwalking, all that sort of stuff. So you do that with your parents. Hey, yeah, so yeah. especially especially me old man. I'm not sure if me uh, mum actually did like it as much as what she pretended. <laughs> I've just got that feeling. She doesn't she doesn't go out with him anymore. And I can remember a couple of tantrums that she threw um, around the campsite. Uh, Everyone's mum be like that. <laughs> setting up and putting the tent down every second day. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's definitely where it first started. Right from a young age, I can remember um, getting dragged around by the old man out the bush, and it has definitely sort of like developed from there. And I think I've overtaken his passion for the outdoors and uh, sort of made it my own. Yeah, yeah, right. So you remember it from as young as you can remember. Like you remember doing it from the start. Do you have any real fond memories that stick in your head that you can sort of remember and share? Like real vivid memories of like your first camping trip or. Or they're all kind of just blurred into one? Well, they are all blurred in, but I still can remember. So, like, my earliest fishing memories are probably uh, fishing the Monero streams uh, with Dad, you know, like uh, rivers like um, the Kydra, New Morella, Badger, and then little um, rivers in the Brindies like, you know, the Grutta Digby and stuff like that, just drowning a worm or two. Yeah, I can remember that sort of stuff, and I can remember tagging along with him when he was um, – potting off a few rabbits for the pot to take home for mum to cook and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was probably about seven or eight years old when we first started going on the bigger, bigger trips and him and uh, my uncle would drag me up north and we'd fish a little river in Northern Territory flowing into the Gulf called Lemon Bite River. Yeah. So I sort of got my first taste of tropical style fishing at seven or eight. Um, that was all still bait fishing. No, there was no lures. I don't even know if I knew what a lure was. My old man was never really into lure fishing as a younger fella um, or bringing me up. So it was all bait fishing, but um, he definitely did get me started with the outdoor yeah. uh, lifestyle. And then it's just uh, gone from there. Like he obviously just – because a lot of people would have parents like that and then they sort of go, nah, it's not for me. Obviously, it was like, hell yeah. Like, no, always, always loved it. Then, then obviously you – most sort of kids go through that sort of like age where they're sort of from sort of uh, 16 to 18 where they sort of like get into like girls and partying and that sort of stuff. But that didn't last too long for me. Yeah. Um, it happened though. <laughs> it definitely did happen. And I reckon there was probably two or three years where I didn't care about the bush, didn't care about fishing, anything like that. Yeah. Um, the main probably thing that set me off to make it a real passion of mine was getting um, a posting in the army when I was in my young 20s and getting sent to Darwin. Right, so okay. I, sort of, I liked my fishing. Um, I, I don't think I'd even caught a cod on a lure or maybe even nothing on a lure at that stage. Went up to the NT, bought myself a boat, went halves with Dad, and then started fishing up there. Right, okay. Um, and obviously, as sort of everyone knows, the NT is the absolute bees knees for someone who loves the outdoors and fishing and that sort of stuff so that four-year posting to darwin just absolutely made me fall in love with fishing hunting the outdoors and then i came back to canberra at, in, in my mid-20s and just been nuts on it ever since yeah right so you went up there when you were 20 is that what you went up a bit later about 22 years old and you then came up, back yeah. here yeah. 25 26 and yeah by then i well and truly had the bug in those four years yeah yeah so did you go up on your own to darwin Yep, yep, on my own. So the, the army flew me up and 
and I just sort of started trying to work out how to catch these fish. I thought it was going to be an absolute like walk in the park because I'd read fishing magazines and all yep. that, and I thought, oh, you fish for barramundi in there everywhere, tropical yep. waters, you don't need any skill or anything. I could not have been more wrong. Yeah. I remember when I first got up there, I had 14 days off work, and um, I fished freaking flat out for those 14 days. Thought I was going to catch a plethora of fish. I don't think I caught a single fish in those 14 days. So, <laughs> Steep learning had, curve, eh? Yeah, it was. Um, but um, over that four years, I slowly uh, started thinking more about um, the, the fish and animals themselves and how they act and thought more about the environment and not just fishing wherever was sort of, you know, easy for me to go. And um, that's when you start getting a love for something once it starts making sense you can see the results taking effect and um you know that the things that you're thinking and are uh, working out um are actually working for you yeah so did you did you did you go on your own to start with or did you find someone that you become mates with that you fished with and then did you target all your species or was your concentration barra so a little bit of both had a couple of mates in the army that um that were keen for a fish um i sort of had to sort of swap who i took out because uh no one was probably quite as keen to go out as much as i was so it was sort of like one trip with this fella one trip with that fella one yeah. trip on my own and then start all over again because i did get pretty nuts on it um and i was keen to catch absolutely everything mate absolutely everything barramundi were certainly um my passion and they have probably been my favorite fish since i first caught one in Weeper when I was about uh, 12 years old. Yeah. Um, and so ever since then, Barra Money have been my number one, but I'm not sort of, I'm not a one fish sort of person. I don't yeah. claim to be an expert on um, on anything, but I would like to say that you sort of can chuck me anywhere. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to picking up a fish. Yeah, that's a good way to be. And I guess you've had the opportunities, you know, being up there, being down here, Moving around, traveling around, fishing all sorts of different places, doing your adventure stuff, which is, which is kind of cool because you get to experience so many different things. And so, did you catch a cod before you moved? Had you caught a cod before you moved home? Like, did you come oh. home for Christmas on holidays and and fish for cod, or you didn't? You waited like you weren't until you're 26 and you started lure fishing for them. Yeah, good question. I was thinking about it just the other day, and I do remember I caught one small cod in Canberra Pool, which is a pretty well-known sort of um, spot around here on the Murrumbidgee River, a, pop uh, um, a popular swimming spot. I caught a very small cod on a stump jumper, I think it was, before I went um, to Darwin, but that was literally it cod-wise um, yeah. on lures. And that was the only cod I think I'd ever caught, maybe one or two on corn if I had done it by accident in Lake Tuggeranong while sort of having a carp bash as a kid, but that's about it. And then when I went to Darwin, obviously I fell in love with it. The army wasn't really for me, so I always knew I was coming back to Canberra. So for that far last year, I sort of started thinking, what am I going to do when I come back to Canberra? How am I going to keep this passion going? Yeah. Because like I love chasing my barra then, love doing my pig hunting, buffalo hunting, all that sort of stuff. So I sort of set myself all these goals and plans, like what I'm going to do. And catching Murray Cod um, in the rivers around Canberra was sort of like number one on my list and got straight into it as soon as I got back and freaking loved it and yeah. so now, now it's definitely top of the bucket list um, of the things that I like to do when I've got some time with. yeah so did you find it fairly easy to sort of work out once it's coming from Barra to Cod like you've, you'd obviously worked out how to catch Barra over four years and fishing up in the salt was it a bit of a transition or did you know what you're up for or did it sort of fall easy or look yeah I don't think that I found it too hard only because one thing that that's a little bit different is that bloody tides, tide, it took me ages to work out tides and right. you don't have to worry about that in the um, 
in the freshwater rivers and dams, obviously, to an extent. But, um, yeah, it took me four years to freaking work out how to catch barramundi on certain tides. So for that last six months of living up there, I really worked it out. And I was like, cool, I can go out and be confident of catching half yep. a dozen, dozen barra now. And then I got shipped out of there. Um, so coming back to Canberra, um, it was sort of easy not having to worry about looking at that sort of thing. But um, cod have got their own challenges in themselves. But that's where my style of fishing um, sort of comes into its own. I love my adventure stuff, like you sort of said at the start. So grabbing a backpack and walking as far as possible is my favourite thing to do. Um, so the Murrumbidgee and um, sort of catching cod on foot in small streams um, like sort of works for me and the stuff that I like to do because I don't care if it's 50 k's that I've got to trek yeah. in um, to get to some water. So, yeah, it suited me pretty well, man. That's the go. So that would be your go-to now that you're home would be – well, what is your – what would be your favourite – style of fishing not necessarily species but is yep. your favorite style definitely that walking for Hand, cod hands down man it doesn't have to be walking for cod either a, ba- a backpack half a dozen lures and whether it's cod uh, jungle perch or another one that's perfect for it uh, like bass in the small coastal streams all that sort of stuff like I absolutely love getting out on the boat and catching the decent cod in the dam or uh, flatties down the coast on a weekend. But, yeah, on the two pegs with a backpack uh, in some water where I'm pretty sure no one's fished for quite a while, that's definitely uh, – that puts sort of goosebumps on the back of my neck. More. Yeah, just talking about it. What is – if you were to go so, – so I'm just trying to think because it's not the easiest style of fishing, um, especially for people – Obviously, if you're a fan of walking, like it's it's good, but it's still it's still hard on your body, but it's good for you. Obviously, what do you when you do those trips? Do you kind of plan? Um, do you kind of plan and go right? We're going away for a couple of days. If you're doing say jungle perch or even I know cod, probably you just go for a day maybe because it's close to home. Yep. But yeah, what's the plans usually when you go? So say you're chasing bass down in the the, the down towards the coast or your jungle perch. Do you go away for a few days and then you? Do you plan to do a full day of walking every day? Yep. So when it comes to like things like like so bass or jungle perch, especially my few trips up north for junglies, that's definitely a whole day thing. Like my goal is always to be to try and walk uh, as far upstream as what I possibly can. I mean, I just love the idea of. Um, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm fishing in water that's never been fished, but I, I love the idea of casting into a pool where as as little fishing pressure has has been here as possible. Yeah. So um, I do like walking a long way, and I will fish definitely from dawn till dusk when it comes to that sort of stuff. You're right with the Murray cod. I'm really lucky, man. Like some of my biggest cod in the Murrabidgee, like I could probably hang up this phone right now and be at the water within like, I don't know, 40 minutes probably, and that's driving and walking. So I'm pretty lucky with that. So for Murray cod, I'll just go for a morning session or an afternoon session on the Bidgee for most spots. Um, but otherwise, yeah, junglies or Australian bass or anything like that, then yeah, all day walking, no point coming back. That wastes a lot of time. And you've walked so far, you don't want to come back and then go and do it again. So yeah, yeah, yeah. stay out all day for sure, man. Yeah. And then what do you pack? I want to know what's in your what's in your backpack on a big full day trek. What do you have? Yeah, well, <laughs> the number one thing, if anyone knows me, is that I'm an absolute guts. So it's I don't go well without food. food. It's be, full I'd of food. A, <laughs> I'd be a ter- terrible prisoner of war, mate. I'd give up the country in two seconds if they offered me a pizza. Yeah. So, mate, a lot of food, um, depending on where I'm walking, uh, a lot of water as well. 
Um, that's really important. If you're fishing in like crystal clear streams or up north for junglers and that, you don't need to worry about that as much. One bottle's fine. But um, apart from the food and the normal stuff, um, I'm really light on my tackle. I'm not a big lure changer. I don't switch up every sort of 10 casts, um, especially with the fish that I'm chasing. I'm usually fishing for fish in like uh, fairly unfished water, which means they're an aggressive sort of um, fish usually that has that yep. you don't have to be too picky with. Um, but apart from that, mate, That's... head torch. You need to bring your head torch because you're always going to be walking back after dark. I don't stop casting till the light falls to below the um, below the horizon. You know, you, yep. that's the magic. Those are the magic minutes. So I don't pull up stumps until it's dark. So you need your head torch, obviously. Otherwise, you can get into a lot of trouble. Um, snake bite kit. Always carry that. I've got an EPIRB with me or a PLB as they're known now, personal locating beacon. Yep. Um, most people probably know what they are, but if not, it's just basically a little device um, that works off GPS. You set it off, emergency services will know that you're in big trouble and you'll get someone into your location to get you out. Yeah. Oh, what else? That's probably the main yeah. things. And yeah. then then all, then all the rest of your normal tackle, you know, pliers, scissors, braid, leader, all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, the important stuff, I wouldn't go any of the places that I go without a PLB. It's just too dangerous, mate. Um, yeah. I've, I've ran into a bit of trouble before. I haven't actually set one off. Um, I was very close at one point. Uh up north um once a couple of hours out of darwin while i was hunting and i got bitten by a snake and got really sick. Uh, yeah yeah i um <laughs> i i sort of did everything wrong to be honest so um i'm lucky it, it wasn't a deadly snake i'm still i'm not 100 percent sure of the species because i didn't actually see it happen but um i had the plb out right in my hands and i was sort of shaking and starting to feel a bit sick and i was like oh do i want to let this thing off or not you know i sort of you get a bit like, oh, do I really want to be rescued and be the centre of attention? All these helicopters and everything. Nah, I'll be a, I'll be a hero and walk back to my car. But that was a silly thing to do, man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll be letting that off next time. But yeah, definitely get one of those. They're only about, I think, two hundred and fifty dollars these days. If you never use it, who cares? If you do use it, it saved your life. Yeah, yeah. So that with that snake, with the snake incident, how did you know? Did you feel it, but then didn't see it, or you just started to feel yeah. sick? So basically, so I was walking back to my car. It was right on dark. I'd been um, on a little bit of a pig hunt. I was all on my own. I was probably about 400 meters from my car. And, oh, so you were um, nearly back to the car. Nearly back to the car. So yeah, probably half a K, probably half a K to go. And um, everyone probably knows what I'm talking about here. You step on a stick that's sort of like got a bit of a curve in it. And as you step on the stick, it sort of flicks up and the stick hits you. Like I'm sure it's happened to you and sort yep. of everyone that's walked through the bush before. Yep. Yeah, well, that, that, that happened to me or so I thought. Probably about thirty seconds after this, after this stick that I've stepped on, I stopped and thought that stick was really sharp, and it and it hit me really fast. So I bent down, untook, took the bag off, and then sort of just rolled down my socks because um, I was wearing long socks with boots. And lo and behold, there was sort of two little pinpricks that just looked like a little vampire got me, and I thought. Ah, yeah, that stick was a little bit fast because it was a regular one. Um, so, yeah, so I took the bag off. I got the pressure bandage out and everything. I didn't put it on. I thought, well, am I going to put this on and then just keep walking? Um, I got the PLB out. I took it out of its case. I was just about to press it and I thought, nah, I'll take it easy. I'm not going to stress. And I didn't. I'm not too I'm not too stressed out with, um, you know, that sort of stuff. I don't panic easily. So um, yeah. I slowly walked back to the car. Um, it was a long drive back to Darwin. I got very nauseous. I threw up all through the car and all that sort of stuff. Took myself to hospital. By then, I was actually feeling better. Yeah. Um, got a bit of a reaming from the nurses who saw me and said, you've done everything wrong. You're a bloody idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, 
and um, whatever it was, um, you probably would be in a little bit more trouble by now if it was a brown. There was only two poisonous snakes that I knew in the area. One was a brown snake, and obviously if that one had a got me, I probably would have been gone skis. Um, there was another type. I can't actually remember the name. Some little green thing, and I've done the research since. All my symptoms say that it was most likely one of these fellas who are just sort of making nauseous, sick, and that sort of stuff. But Yeah, um, yeah, luckily. Yeah, so, yeah. Let the PLB off, guys, if you um, get bitten by a snake. Yeah. And I'll be doing the same next Yeah, time. good story. Good story for what not to do. But it, you'd come across stacks of brownies through the home where you walk, yeah? You'd see them all the time. Oh, yeah, especially by the river, mate. During the summertime, browns, red belly blacks. Uh, they love the water, as you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just – but, I mean, I, I wear gaiters now, and they give you a bit of protection. But, um, yeah, it's, I, I love all animals, man. Like, absolutely love snakes. Like, you've never seen me killing a snake or anything like that. I absolutely love them, man. I'm happy to sit and watch them for sort of – for hours at a time. I just I, – I love all animals, and um, snakes are definitely one of my favorites. So, yeah. yeah, no bad feelings. Yeah, no, no, of course not. And, obviously, I was getting at is you do that much sort of walk and that the chances are pretty slim. And, obviously, you've got to have at least one encounter with the amount of adventure you've done. So, yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely. Yeah. yeah, and then so that's one thing. Talking about snakes and all the animals and that. Tell us a little bit about. Obviously, you love them all. How do you? Is it a little bit of adventure trying to catch lizards, turtles, goannas, and is it? I've seen you with so many photos with so many. How do you go? How do you? How do you pick up an echidna? Yeah. Oh, they're a bit difficult, actually. They're I was gonna say, think. surely, like, surely it's difficult. <laughs> you gotta, you've just gotta be quick before if they start digging. You've got absolutely no chance. Digging. I mean, you don't want to hurt the little fella, obviously. So, um, you just sort of got to creep up nice and slow. And if they don't think you're there, then you've got to do that last sort of three meter dash where you sort of just like absolutely launch yourself. And um, yeah, you're gonna have to be willing to get a couple of little pricks in your um in your are palms, they sharp but, um, or not really? Yeah, yeah, they are, and they all face backwards. So if you get them from the front, which is probably pretty hard, because if you come from the front, they're going to see you. So yeah. you have to come from the back, and then as you grab them, they are sharp. But um, yeah, they're a lot softer than what people they're a lot softer than what people think. But um, yeah, they are still a little bit sharp. But yeah, ever since I was a kid, I just couldn't bloody help myself. Every freaking animal that I see, <laughs> I've got to try and catch it. I've got to pick it up, and I don't think I've grown out of it, mate. Well, I hope you're enjoying this chat with Matt so far. Uh, I really enjoy sitting down and listening to him talk and tell all these stories and there are plenty more stories to come in the rest of this episode. But I just quickly wanted to talk to you about the reports that we have inside the SF membership. Now, one of the components, one of the many components inside the membership are the updated monthly reports. Now, I want to talk to you a a little bit about reports. Now, there's some places where we do get them in written format and I truly believe that reports aren't beneficial at all in a written published format and it's because it takes so long for things to be published and then in your hands and they're written in advance and they're just a long range prediction and it annoyed me reading and also writing reports for magazines and that's what led me to basically create these reports or bring these reports to life inside the membership where they are published the day that they're written by anglers who have been fishing those few days before and that way you're getting up-to-date information because basically a lot of the printed content when it comes to reports and talking about a waterway or a system at that time is there three, four, five weeks in advance and weather patterns, all sorts of things change from year to year. This summer just gone 
is a great example of that. We had completely different conditions to normal. If you read one of those standard reports that were written four or five weeks in advance, it would tell you, you know, 40 degrees, it's going to be hot, the fish are going to be doing this. In so many places, and we've read this and seen this in these SF reports, Mawala, Burundong, uh, places like Blaring, Burundjak have all fished completely differently because the temperature has been a lot lower. Plus, we've had massive rains and inflows. And the whole point of why I'm explaining this to you is because having knowledge that's from people out there fishing right now and telling you the next day is incredible and makes a massive difference to your fishing sessions. And that's why we started the reports inside the SF membership. We currently have 14 reports and they include places like Lake Epilock, Burundong Dam, Blaring Dam, the Canberra region, Burrinjuk Dam, Glenbourne, Gugong, Lake Hume, Lake Mawala, Nagambi Lakes, the Snowy Mountains region, Wyangla Dam, the Wagga region, so the Murrumbidgee River, and Windermere Dam. And we are continually expanding these reports to help you guys catch fish. They're written by locals who fish the waterways on a regular basis, and they're helping you get out there and have success and catch fish on your local waterway. So if you want to learn more about that or what else is inside the SF membership, make sure you jump on socialfishing.com.au to check it out. Now, let's get back to the episode with Matt. So that's that's the echidna. You've, you've picked up... You, uh, have you picked... You've, you've had a crack at goannas, yeah? Yeah, I've caught a couple of goannas before. Uh, They're a big <laughs> unit. Yeah, they are. The, uh, the last one I caught probably was, I think, from memory, it was a couple of years ago, and it was sort of um, in between um, taking... Uh, a female for a, a night out, uh, to put it a nice way. Um, mm. <laughs> it was the middle of breeding season, and so I think he was a bit puffed out from the last 30 seconds of effort that he put in. And um, so I sort of, um, yeah, picked him up and took a couple of photos. But you just got to watch out for their claws and their teeth are pretty bacterial-lined. Bacteria, so you don't want to yeah. get, yeah, you don't want to get a chomp by them. But even the claws can sort of like uh, give you a little bit of a scratch anyway. But yeah, it's worth it's it. It's good just fun. The, the memories anyway. <laughs> yeah, so what's the what's the go? Someone's fishing with you or hunting with, or walking around with you and then this creature's going past and it's like, hang on, we're on here. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. going with you. It's like, righto, wait, righto, we've got a crocodile here. Let's try and get like a little baby one. Like I saw that photo of you with the little tacker. How yeah. did you, you go getting that? Uh, so that one there, I've caught a few little babies. Usually, oh, I've caught them by hand a few times. That one was being a little bit cheeky, and it was sort of um, not quite letting me get close enough. So um, I think I was flicking some drains with a, um, I don't know, some shallow diver or something like that, and I just sort of um, dangled the line over the top of him, and just basically he sort of grabbed onto the lure, and I just picked him up into the boat, and, <laughs> and um, <laughs> oh, yeah, funny. took a couple of photos and stuff like that. But um, yeah, like I said, I just really enjoy animals, and so sharing content like that, um, I, I think it's good to just get everyone else into the outdoors and people always ask me questions and then I get into big conversations talking about animals and stuff like that and I don't know, we're all sort of so involved with ourselves these days but we don't think about the little things that are out there and those things really sort of get me excited about going bush so I'm I'm happy to sort of have a bit of a muck around and not just be too serious all the time. Yeah, so I was going to say, it sort of brings back the whole enjoyment of the whole adventure, not just, you know, catching that one big fish or, you know, whatever you do when you, with, with hunting and that it's all sort of those small things that make it all enjoyable. Um, uh, I can imagine she's pretty, com- like, a fair bit of comedy going on with you too. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely, man. So I've never really, I'm not the sort of, um, you know, I envy like sort of you blokes who, um, you know, can just put their mind to that, those big cold over winter or, you know, uh, some fella who like just 
constantly catches 50 centimeter plus bass or whatever but i've got to be constantly changing like and it sort of is like it's a blessing and a curse at the same time i've had so many great experiences but i but i certainly can't call myself an expert in any sort of field or um you know i've never had a season where i can say i've caught 10 meteries out of bar and jack or anything like that because i'll do a couple sessions on the busy then i'll head down the coast or then i'll go up into the mountains chasing deer or something like that so i can never really pin down um, or, or get my expertise sort of trained on like one particular field, which I sort of like about myself and sort of don't at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you, like uh, then again, it's 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 your life, you know what I mean? Like and that's the thing that a lot of people listening as well, you know, everyone's different and everyone does different things to enjoy, you know, their whole life. So it's not about, you know, doing exactly what say we do and, you know, maybe chase big cod flat out for a whole winter. If that's not for you, then, you know what I mean? It's not for you. But if you really want that trophy fish, then you, you will have to put in the effort. But then again, if you want a life like yourself, which is just full of adventure, all this variety, you know what I mean? We have choice and that's what's great, you know. Exactly, yeah. I couldn't agree more, mate. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I just, yeah, I just reckon there'd be so much great fun stuff that goes on uh, fishing with you, the adventures and, yeah, I just can't imagine you'd be just walking along and then all of a sudden there's, you know, you're chasing fish, but hang on, there's a snake. I'll be gone for half an hour watching the snake <laughs> yeah. or, or something. It's exactly, it's exactly how it is, man. I can get very just distracted very easily. Yeah, that's so cool. And obviously, um, I even saw another little clip that you put on social media. It comes down to the point of, you know, looking after him and I saw you rescued a turtle. Um, I don't know how long ago that was, but, you know, and it's good that you're that kind of bloke. Like, what would you see? The turtle on the side of the road. Yeah, man, that's like, that's uh, around here. I don't know what it is about Canberra or whatever, but we've had a lot of rain lately, same as where you're from anyway. But um, after the rain, they just bloody, I don't Aren't know they what shocking? they do. Yeah, they're, they're just, and mate, it takes them an hour to get across the road. And I'm like, he's not going to make it. So oh, it's pretty much a weekly thing. I can't drive past a turtle without grabbing it, then stopping what I'm doing, heading down to the nearest waterway, BG or whatever, and letting him go. Because I know he's not going to make it across. I mean, yeah. And they know, come, just... I don't know where they come from. And they're nowhere near the, you know, they're just, <laughs> they must just sit in drains and gutters beside roads. Yep. And they just pop up when it rains. They're, yeah. Yeah. Heaps of seen some, seen some friggin' turtles in some weird places, but yeah, I mean, if they were a bit faster, I'd probably be happy to sort of let them run the gauntlet. But you know that it's it's like an hour long trip for them to get across the road, so yeah, I can't help myself there. Yeah, it's good. I'm, gl- I'm glad someone's out there is doing that because <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't. And yeah, it's just good that you've got that kind of care for for nature and creatures and things like that. It's really awesome. So. I want to talk a little bit about what's a, I don't think there'd be a normal for you, but like what's a normal week or month look like? So obviously you got to make a coin, you work, but what's a normal month with Matt look like? Yeah, so work-wise, basically, I've, I work a shift work job where I'm usually working either, say, two to four days straight, yep. and then I've got probably two to four days off. It usually just rotates like that. Oh, okay. And if I don't if I don't get out bush for something, whether it's fishing, hunting, uh, bushwalking, exploring new spots, once every single time I'm off, then, mate, I'm, yeah, crazy. I'm, in, the, I'm in the doldrums. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I won't go uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, a week without getting out. probably at least twice and it might just be an arvo sort of bit of a you know photography session where i'm taking photos of some deer i don't have a rod with me i don't have a rifle with me i don't have a bow nothing like that i'm just happy to be out but yeah it's got to happen at least once or twice a week otherwise i get pretty sad yeah right okay so then in a month i know life's different but you go out a little bit here and there but do you plan do you go away a fair bit like do you plan to go away fairly often or like for example for the next 
between now and Christmas, do you have any plans to go away for a few days chasing anything in particular or are they all just so shorter big, trips? So big trip was, um, I haven't done any massive trips for quite a while since probably North Queensland last year. But, um, mate, where, where I live, I'm really lucky. Like, I, I don't really need to. Like, I can come back and sleep in my bed and get up in the morning and I've got three different species of deer within an hour of my house. Um, massive yellow belly in Gurgong, half an hour away from where I live. Um, so big trips aren't actually needed. But I do like exploring everywhere. I fished all over Australia. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, but I've got nothing massive on the horizon, um, but I definitely have a ginormous bucket list of stuff that I sort of want to start getting ticked <laughs> off. And, um, that's yeah. never going to end. No, nah, no. Nah. What's one thing on that ginormous list? Oh, geez, mate. Okay. We're going to oh, – if I have to pick one thing. Um, all right. South America fishing in the rainforest, mate. Wow. Um, um, have you ever heard of a golden Dorado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, mate, ever since I've bloody seen them in magazines as a kid, I've just been obsessed with them. Like, that's my, that's my ultimate adventure fish. Other side of the world, in a rainforest, crystal clear streams, big fish, aggressive, fight hard. On lures, it doesn't get any better than no, that. No, it so, doesn't. You just summed it up like so well. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I guess, if I had to just pick one thing. But, yeah, there's heaps. I'd love to do some overseas stuff. I've never fished anywhere else apart from New Zealand. Yeah. So I would like to do some stuff in Europe, America, and sort of South America as well. But, um, yeah, hopefully we can start ticking some of those things off when this COVID yeah, stuff ends. Yeah, pain in the ass. Yeah, it's annoying, isn't it? Big time, man. I had a trip to New Zealand with the old man hunting um, Himalayan tar in New Zealand in April, and so that one got canned as well. I was going to hit the um, the um, canals around um, uh, Twizel in New Zealand as well yep. for some of those monster trout. Um, but, yeah, obviously that one sort of you know, had to slip by the way, wayside. Yeah, fingers crossed everything will sort of go back to normal one day soon, and those trips will become reality, mate, hopefully. Yeah, come yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, but that's all right. We've got we've got plenty of good stuff close to home, which is which is good because you know you live in such a great part of the world. Like you said, there's so many different things you can do so close to home. Mate, if we're gonna be stuck in any country, this is the one. To be yeah, stuck. yeah, exactly, Without exactly. So tell me a little bit about your hunting. I know we're basically a fishing podcast, but the the hunting adventures. Obviously, what draws you to hunting? Obviously, the same thing as fishing. Um. Yeah, I just. Again, so I love being out in the outdoors, and it was just one more sort of uh, sort of thing to do out there, I guess. I, I've always been into, like I said before, I've been into animals, so I always loved watching them, trying to catch them, sneak up as close as I could, just take photos or whatever, and then hunting is just like a, um, a natural progression from that. And yeah. once you sort of realize that you can feed yourself and your family, um, and in a big way, that was sort of like the icing on the cake. I mean, you take one deer... It's not like fishing where you sort of need to catch 10 flatties and you eat for a week or two. If I take a deer, especially a samba deer, um, as most hunters will know, and you take all four legs and back straps, mate, me and the missus will eat for six to eight months yeah, wow. um, without ever having to go to the shop for red meat. So, like, that's a big draw card for me as well. Yeah. Um, and I just love being out there, man. Um, I probably started hunting... Uh, Seriously, um, right before I went to the army, so I started deer hunting with dad. Um, I sort of probably got him into it. He was always, um, he always had the 22 in the um, 
in the gun safe and we'd go out shooting rabbits every now and again for mum to um, cook up for the pot. And I remember one day reading a magazine and seeing this sort of deer situation. I'd never even seen a deer in my whole life. Yeah, right. I don't, know, I don't know how I missed What age is this? Oh, probably Roughly. 19, yeah, 19, right. I think. Yep. So uh, the amount of time that I'd spent in the bush and never seen a deer, I can't believe it now because I now can't leave the house without seeing a deer, no matter what I'm doing, fishing, hunting, walking. Almost going to the shops. There's deer everywhere. <laughs> but um, but back then I said I just sat dad down. Said dad, let's go hunt deer. So we went and bought a, a secondhand 308. We went out together and we managed to get a, a nice fellow buck um, down near the Victorian border on our first trip out. And mate, we both got the bug from then. And he's probably got it even worse than me. So he's got me to blame for that one. My oh, dad, so you both did that like that first deer together? Like it was yeah, his first t- t- together. Too. I, yeah. I I took it. I think he spotted it first. Um. We took it home, ate it, beautiful. We both just fell in love with it then and there. And now he's he's mental, mate. He'll go out probably three days out of every seven. So basically he spends the weekend with my mum and he'll go out, you know, Wednesday or sorry, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, come back, spend the weekend with mum again, then he'll head out into the hills again. And he's oh, like no that way. pretty much every week, especially through the wintertime. Yeah, so, goes um, on his own. Yeah, he just goes on his own, mate. And he's Loves happy it. with that sort of stuff. Yeah. He's, he, he's got the... Um, uh, the rifle, if he sees an absolute monster or he wants to take something for the um, freezer. Otherwise, he's a bit of a weapon on the camera. He's had quite a few um, photos published in magazines. And, um, yeah, he gets some really good snaps because he spends so much time out there. Uh, yeah. He's got a lot of patience, more than me anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what I was going to say is you're hunting – it's obviously a whole experience and you don't always go out there every time to kill something. Majority of your trips would be to see stuff, wouldn't it? It's all about sort of seeing them. Like you said, you sit there and watch them, yeah? A hundred percent, mate. A hundred percent. I'll probably, let's say I do 50 hunting trips a year, mate, I'll probably take, I reckon on average, one to three deer a year. That's it. That's the amount of bullets and arrows I'll fire. Um, the rest, of, and, I, and I probably see 5,000 deer, um, deer are sort of my thing. So, um, I really like chasing them, but yeah, no, it's certainly not about, um, shooting everything that you see. Um, I'm happy to be honest and say when I do take a deer, I feel, um, I feel happy and sad at the same time. I mean, it's not good that that animal's had to lose its life. I do feel sorry for that particular animal, but, um, I do also think that the way the world works in the circle of life is a beautiful thing. I've always thought that since a kid as well. So, yeah. um, yeah, I definitely cherish those times, and I do feel um, do feel remorse for the animal. But um, yeah, I do love being out there, and I'm more than happy just to sit and look at look at a mob of deer for two hours and uh, walk back to camp with a big smile on my face. I don't have to yeah. take anything. That's so good. And in that moment, for people who sort of have this busy life, you know, the the weeks go round and round and round and round. For you, in those moments, that all those days that you're out there, you're not think. Are you? Well, you let me know. You're not thinking about anything else. It's just you're there in the moment. Absolutely, it's that's completely right. No phones, no cars, no thinking about work, nothing like that. It, your your mind just drifts off to what's happening right in front of your eyes, and the amount of things that you see, especially when you slow down and take notice i mean rushing around the bush bush walking and all that's all great but since i started hunting only because i had to slow down and sort of be a bit more uh, mindful of what i was doing and where i was placing myself and try to sneak around a bit i've seen some amazing things like mate i was just i was I was um, hunting the other day on my own with the uh, bow and I was watching over a mob of um, deer and I had the the arrow knocked uh, because I was thinking about maybe taking one for the freezer and a um, 
a little rosella came down and literally was just sitting on my arrow as I was holding the bow. And yeah. it just sat there for like seven minutes while I was watching these deer and this rosella at the same time. And I'm like, this is crazy. This thing doesn't even know I'm here. It's just sitting on my arrow. No idea. I was looking like right into its freaking pupil. Um, that sort of stuff just like, yeah, That's it makes cool. it all worthwhile. That's cool. That's what I mean. Like some people just wouldn't know you know, to slow down. And I guess with fishing, what you're getting at there, like hunting makes you slow down. With fishing, you kind of run to the next log, run to the next spot, run yeah, definitely, back, for sure. catch fish, head home. You're like, I don't even see, I don't even know what bush I was in. Whereas obviously yeah, you exactly. take the time to sort of soak that all in. And, and you're saying hunting sort of taught you that. Definitely, man, definitely. So I've, I've always got a bit of a different mindset when I'm hunting as to when I'm fishing. When I'm fishing, I, I do I do want to catch fish, so I'm the exact same as what you said. You know, I'm always sort of like you're racing the clock, you're trying to get to the productive areas, smash them, then move to the next productive area, smash that again, come back, you know, on last light to your prime spot and do all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, hunting definitely does make you slow down and enjoy the little things that you wouldn't otherwise uh, usually get to see. Yeah. Do you reckon, do you, reckon you could be you can fishing – as, as a personality, like when you're out there fishing, you can be a little bit more fun and stupid compared to hunting. Are you serious when you hunt? But not serious, but more because I, I know a few people who hunt and fish and they're two different people. So when they're hunting, because you've got to be quiet, they've got a totally different personality to when they're fishing. Does that make sense? Yeah, mate, 100%. As soon as you said it, it was like ringing bells in my ear, mate. Like, exactly. When I'm hunting, uh, like, for example, I, I can fish with anyone. More than happy to have a joke, fish with anyone, talk to you, blah, blah, blah. When I'm hunting, I don't even like to be with anyone else. I like to hunt on my own. Yeah. Everyone hunts differently. Some people want to be faster. Some people slower. Um, everyone's got different hunting style. I don't like hunting with someone else next to me. I only want to be on my own when I hunt. Um not to say that someone else is going to annoy me or anything like that, but I just prefer to do it how I want to do it. Whereas fishing, that's sort of uh, that's definitely where you can get a bit more social and sort of enjoy the friendships and uh, have a shit talk and enjoy yourself. Yeah. So yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. You hit the nail on the head there. So they're two, they're two sort of good things to have in your life, and obviously why you enjoy both because they're two very different things, but completely. still outdoors. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I can't go too long without doing one or the other. So. If I've gone fishing three times in a row, I've got to get out with the bow and go for a walk in the hills. Yeah. So, what's your favourite thing to hunt? Deer, hundred percent. So. And what deer do you have close to home? So we've got a lot of fallow near here. We've got a few reds. Uh, we've got samba. They're slowly moving further, further and further north. So I'm starting to see them a bit closer to Canberra. I've got some really close spots to Canberra where um, they're starting to turn up on trail cameras and stuff like that. But mainly fallow, you could say, are sort of everywhere, mate. Yeah. Everywhere I fish along the Murrumbidgee, there's fallow. Um, so yeah, we're pretty lucky or unlucky depending on sort of who you are. If you're a landowner, you sort of you might not like them. Yeah. Um, if you're a hunter or someone who likes to see some deer running around, then yeah, I can't go anywhere these days um, without seeing some deer. And then, so you're saying they move north? Is that because they prefer the, the cooler climate? And now that things are heating up, they're sort of is that why they're moving more north? No. Nah, so basically, so samba deer were um, released. Um, in the 1800s down near Melbourne and basically that was their release point right. and they've just there's been a strong wave of just basically population um, breeding up and slowly spreading north throughout the forested area they've colonized the whole of East Gippsland and the bush of um, Victoria uh, probably 30 40 years ago they would have reached the border and now they're slowly going further up all through sort of uh, you know down the coast and up that sort of um, that range there they've gone all the way colonized the Brindabellas and have sort of hit a um, 
an edge there where there's no more bushland. But eventually they'll keep going up, mate. They'll start breeding with the Rusa herd from uh, South Sydney, sort of Wollongong area, and keep going north. The only thing that's going to stop them is um, farmland and agriculture. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's not. It's just a fact that that's the one place that they will let go. So they sort of exactly. Just it's just spreading. like a very slow explosion. Uh, from that point, um, and they're just slowly spreading out, you know, yeah. a few kilometres every single year. So it's a pretty fascinating thing if you once you start sort of having a look at it. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I wouldn't, I'd have no idea, and that's why I'm kind of interested to hear. And that's the thing, I'm, I'm always open to hear lots of different things. And see, I don't hunt, but I've got mates who hunt, and I'm always sort of intrigued at the knowledge that they have on a particular topic. And obviously, to me, fishing, well, especially cod, I've been around it so long learning something completely new is kind of, it's real different and, and yep. it, it's kind of interesting. So with your fallow, for, just for people who are keen here as well, are they sort of similar that they've come, they were put in one spot and they've spread or have they so already the, spread or? Yep. So the thing about fallow is that they're a lot, uh, they're a lot more popular with uh, deer farms. So Samba basically, uh, the ones that I was talking about first, the ones that have come from Melbourne were basically introduced for the sole purpose of hunting um yeah. in the 1800s now fallow they're a lot more popular with deer farms as i said so basically they pop up here there and everywhere because there's a lot of people that farm them and the the main way that they get um released into the wild is either by accident by people cutting fences or by farmers that have just sort of gone bust um and sort of given up let them go or right. had sort of their, their farm destroyed by a fire say and so th there's hundreds of populations of fallows and, and red deer um, around New South Wales, Victoria, just because of that sort of reason. Right. Whereas Samba aren't really a sort of commonly farmed deer, so they're basic. They're basically only from that initial translocation of, um, of uh, deer. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And that's why Samba, for a lot of hunters, are kind of more of a trophy. They're bigger too, yeah? Yeah, they're, they're the third biggest uh, species of deer in the world. Uh, Samba stag will be the same size as a bloody stock horse, basically. Uh, yeah. Sort of 300 to maybe maximum 400 kilos, and that's a big animal when, yeah. you, when you see it in the Australian bush. Um, they definitely are sort of the number one game species in Australia, according to most people. It's just because of their nature as well. I mean, there's by far more Samba than any other deer in Australia, but they're just so ghostly. I mean... You rarely see them out in the open. People can live near Samba for their whole lives and have never seen one. They're right. just sort of like they're just like a mysterious creature that sort of has this aura about them because they're so bloody hard to hunt. It is getting a little bit easier now because their numbers have definitely exploded in the last twenty years. But um, yeah, they're just a magnificent creature that is really, really difficult. They're so switched on, and the places they live, uh, they they sort of you know they don't frequent you know the openings and clearings and that sort of stuff. They're a sort of a, a deep forest deer most of the time and can be very, very hard to sort of get your eyes onto. Right. So one, it's where they live, but they're also smarter than. Yeah, I mean that's up for debate. I think that okay. it's because of where because of where they live. I think it's just very hard to to get onto them like i think if fallow just lived in like the thickest stuff that australia's got to offer they'd be really hard to hunt as well okay but um but they don't they, they frequent farm fringes and they don't tend to live in like deep forest areas whereas the samba deer do and it makes them really hard to hunt some of the areas you might only have like you know 20 meters of visibility because they're living in the real thick shit and that makes them very very difficult yeah. um and they're, they're just so cautious that for them to stick their head out in the opening they very rarely do it while there's any light they'll use if they are going to pop their heads out onto a farm clearing or a fringe or something like that they will wait till after dark usually so to see one out in the open uh is a pretty rare sight yeah 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 that makes sense 
So I've got another question for you. You know, you, you got this adventure. So you, you hunt, but you'll also go out just to watch deer. Uh, you'll go out fishing, all sorts of different styles everywhere. Uh, there's some. I saw some clips on social on on Instagram. I don't know how many years ago it was. You're in New Zealand, but you're just climbing like a massive, massive mountain. Like, is that just something to do? Was that just no? Just that was, I, was that? A, I was actually hunting at the time. As so well, you were right? hunting, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, so I went over to um, went over to New Zealand. I think it was two years ago. Now I was hunting a species called Himalayan tar. Uh, they're a species of mountain goat, basically that's native to the Himalayas. They were also translocated to New Zealand quite a long time ago for the purposes of hunting. And basically, mate, uh, they so live they on live, that stuff. Yeah, mate, they live right at the top of that stuff. That's the reason why we hunt them. Like, it's not necessarily the animal themselves. They're a pretty stinky sort of. Um, goat really but with um not that impressive horns they do have an amazing mane and i personally think they look great but i can understand why some people wouldn't think they are but it's just the experience again like they're living on the the biggest mountains of the alpine alpine ranges of new zealand and they live right at the freaking top especially if you go <laughs> at at, at a, in the winter time they're right at the top that's gotta be cold it, uh, it, it was cold, but you're working that hard that, like, I was barely wearing anything most of the time, only because of how much, like, I was sweating and putting in, like, yep. those mountains are sort of something else. Um, I think I hunted for five days, and I weighed myself before we went, and I was about 102 kilos. Five days of hunting, I weighed myself when I got out, and I was 91, so I no lost way. about 11 kilos in five days, like, I think it was for a couple of reasons. Like, I was just so entranced by the whole, like, experience and just, like, like I wasn't even thinking about my stomach, which is unbelievable for yeah. me to be saying out loud. But um, just the energy output that you need to hunt that sort of country as well, climbing every day, um, you're just exhausted at the end of every single night. But um, yeah, that was definitely a great experience, and I can't wait to get back there. Is that the hardest sort of adventure that you you reckon you've done? Physical physical adventure, Phys- yeah, yeah. Either either that or um, fishing for jungle perch, mate. Um, in yeah, the rainforests okay. of um. North Queensland, like just doing, like I couldn't do any more than two days in a row. Two full days in a row on the jungle is, is enough. Like, the heat that, or the landscape? No, nah, it's the landscape. Uh, heat a bit as well, but you're in the water half the time anyway, so it's not too bad. But you're just that battered and bruised that, um, like, it's unbelievable. Like I can remember all my freaking toes being, um, being blue from bruises, from slipping off rocks and into other rocks and just the climbing and clambering and stretching and they're just big kilometers because sort of, you know, I, I try to get as far up these creeks as what I can. Yeah. Um, but that's another favorite of mine, definitely. Jungle Perch, uh, North Queensland. If you haven't done it, get get into it. Yeah, cool. Just as a thought for people who are listening to talk thinking maybe I want to give this a crack, is there any particular footwear that you wear for this? Like surely you've worked out something that's real good for your feet in terms of hunting, fishing, or this kind of walking, or nah, you, you don't? Really good question, man, because I have bounced around over the years trying different things as yeah. to what I find best. I thought you'd be like and a so, good bloke to ask. Yeah, look, mate, there's nothing perfect because for different situations, you need different things. Like I, there was a stage where even in the Murrumbidgee, I was only wearing runners because runners will definitely give you more grip, like a soft sole on rocks gives you a great grip but they're not as great for the whole you know walking to and from spot so once i'm at the river i'd rather be wearing runners if i'm on those boulders like the murrumbidgee has where you're fishing off but if i'm walking to and fro i want a bit more ankle protection ankle stability and that sort of stuff so at the moment i have settled on boots say but i will get a soft a really soft soled boot um, for, for gripping on the rocks and i think that's the best way to go um but once those rocks get wet like those smooth bidgy rocks 
don't even bother trying to find something that will grip it because nothing does. Yeah. You just need you just need to be careful. Yeah, right. So you're wearing so what do you got like sort of boots that come just above your ankles? Yep, so I always wear like a high ankle boot just to give myself some ankle stability and I love my gaiters, mate. Like um, I wear Kuiu gaiters. Um, they're amazing. They give you that snake bite protection. Um, you don't have to worry about the seeds um, in you. They give you a little bit of sun protection as well. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like what my sort of knee down sort of kit is. Same setup for hunting? Exactly the same setup for hunting. Yeah. Um, my boots are probably a little bit uh, a little bit stiffer for hunting. Um, I've got a couple of different types depending on what I'm doing. Um, if I'm sort of like mountaineering, like the New Zealand sort of stuff, I wear a very hard sole sort of boot um, because it's just too um, it's too hard on your feet if you've got a soft soft sole shoe and you're like climbing up yeah. mountains and big hard rocks and stuff like that. Um, but with hunting, if you want to be as quiet as possible, then again, you want to go as soft a sold shoe as possible. So um, if I can, if I have the chance, I'll slip my boots off for the last sort of 50 metres of a stalk if I'm trying to get in close to a deer. Yeah, nothing is quieter than Nothing's quieter than socks. So if you can, um, yeah, that's what I try to do anyway. I understand that some people don't like like that sort of stuff and that's fine. Um, but um, yeah, you want to try and get as soft sold shoe as possible if you're trying to be quiet. So you'd take your boots off and just leave your socks on just for that last stalk because it's quieter. Yep. Yeah. If I can, if, I, if I've got the chance to do it, then I, I will do it. I mean, if I can't do it, because sometimes, you know, that, that's a lot of movement, sort of trying to get your, like, undo your shoes uh, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. You know, that's a bit of movement. So, But if I can, and I'm sort of, the, the deer's unalert or doesn't know anything about what I'm doing or anything like that, then, yeah, I'll try and slip them off as quietly and quickly as I can and then get in on socks. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then when you did your sort of, your jungly stuff and you're in the water all the time, you'll just wear the same boots. Um, yeah. 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 yeah, boots, man, definitely. Um, but again, like I said, um, those rocks once they're slippery, they're the same as the the, the rocks on the bidgey as well. There's there's, there's no, there's no shoe, there's no footwear in the world that can you can grip on them. So you just sort of got to be careful. And um, once your soles are wet, then yeah, you just got to slip. Gotta, yeah, you just got to walk soft. Like you just yeah, it's just a part of the adventure, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, man. Um, so another thing I want to talk to you about, you go out on these ventures all the time. Do you have someone who goes with you? Do you have a fishing buddy? Because you take some really good photos. Um, a lot of them are when you're in the photo of fish. So obviously, you've got people who go with you fishing. Have yep. you got, so you've got buddies all the time? Or yeah, I've got a few, man. Like every now and own? then, I'll, if, I'm, if I'm hunting, I'll probably always usually be on my own. Yep. Like, as I said before, that's how I prefer to do it. So if there's a hunting picture, uh, it's likely it's probably just been self-timed or whatever. But fishing, nah, I don't really like fishing on my own. I like to have someone to talk to and sort of soak up the boredom for those donut sessions. So um, <laughs> I'll, go out with, I'll go out with me old man probably more than anyone else. Uh, Mrs. is keen to come along every now and again. I've got a few mates that I tag that would tag along so again it's sort of like what i set up in darwin i mean i, I won't take the sort of no one's keen to come every single, single time. time so i'll sort of just swap around who i go with but yeah there's definitely plenty of people around me that are, that are keen for a flick yeah that's the go let's talk a little bit about some fishing stuff uh for people who want to learn a little bit about things you've learned over the years yep. of fishing first of all before we jump in i remember you messaged me a while back about hybrids um yep. and then popping up a lot and you've seen them popping up a heap more now uh, through your section and they're they're some of the ones you've caught are that schmick looking like they're that awesome looking of a fish and you can just tell they're nothing like either species a eh? like some of those nope. ones yeah they've got the overhanging jaw and they've got a real spaced out modeling towards them where the tail almost looks like a cod they're a mad looking fish eh? 
freaking awesome looking fish. I I can still remember when I first um, encountered one the first time and I was so confused as to what I was looking at because I hadn't even heard of them yet. And I was like, this has got to be a mixture between the two. And I thought I was, you know, like Crazy. the first man on the moon. I thought that I discovered a new bloody species. And yeah. then I did a bit of research and realized what was going on. But yeah, for the last probably five years, mate, um, especially where I fish, they are popping up Everywhere. So, like, I would probably say that in a couple of the spots that I fished last year, I caught more hybrids than actual Murray Cod. Have you caught many trouties? Yeah, so that's the thing. I have, but I definitely catch more hybrid than pure trouties. Yes, which, yeah. Which, which, which sort of sounds a little bit strange, but it definitely is what I have found. Yeah. Um, it's weird, eh? Same, same it, down here. So, you're, you're fishing through the ACT, the Bidgee above Burrenjuk, um, yep. I'm fishing sort of Gundagai, Wagga, Narandra on the Bidgee, and I'd, I'm say, I'm seeing the same thing. Okay, I didn't realise it was the same down there as well. So mm. I don't know what to think of it. I mean, the only thing that I can I can sort of put my head down to is that trout cut aren't that fussy about who they find when it comes to you know um, action in the bedroom because well their action is a bit different because they lay the eggs and then pretty well take off and a male comes over and fertilizes them yeah okay good point yeah. so yeah but uh, i've talked um i've mentioned it in i don't know if it was another podcast i definitely talked about it with chris in the trout cob podcast we did but it, i don't know if we're ever going to get an answer and you know trying to get answers out of dpi is not all that easy but no. from my from my opinion and this could be totally wrong is uh, I reckon that the the removal down our way anyway, the removal of mid river snags way back has now, and that's where the trout cod live. They live in that faster flowing water, as you'd know. Like you get yep, them in that little fast stuff, and that's the area they like to inhabit. And back in the day, there was that much timber through the river. They kind of laid their eggs in the middle of the river, and that way they sort of stayed separate to the cod. Whereas now there's no mid river snags through our stretch of river, and they're all sort of all in the one spot. So your trout cod and your Murray cod are all sitting in the same spot and that's why their eggs are being fertilized and they're crossbreeding, I imagine. That's the only thing I can come up with. But then again, it yeah, right. doesn't make sense for your area because it's all boulders and the structure's all through the middle, left and right, all sorts. Exactly. So yes, I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Well, so I, 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 was, I was really interested and so I did a little bit of research and I, um, I, I found that the... Um, the trout cod stocking program in the ACT, um, whether you've heard about it or not, um, they have stocked quite a few trout cod in the last 20 years in the upper Murrumbidgee. They stocked it in a place called Geigerline Gorge, which is a few a few kilometre stretch of river that's um, ideal cod habitat and completely illegal to fishing, just so that the trout cod that have been released um, have a chance to sort of breed up and then sort of spread out from there, which is a great idea. But as I was reading the uh, the um, the action plan, they basically say that they chose the spot of release because it was just above the upper limit of Murray cod because they didn't want this crossbreeding thing to happen. They wanted the trout cod to be able to, like, breed breed with themselves and just, like, you know, punch out a good population uh, density yeah. out through the river. Now... Um, I'm not sure who did that research to find the upper limit of Murray Cod, but I can tell you and them that I've done plenty of fishing further up than where they've they've said the upper limit of Murray Cod is, and they're wrong. There's plenty of Murray Cod further upstream than where they've uh, released these trout cod, so they're just releasing trout cod smack bang in the middle of like thick Murray Cod habitat, yeah. which I wouldn't have thought there'd be anything wrong with either, but if they are worried mm. about that crossbreeding, then they need to go a bit higher up the Murrumbidgee, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's weird because they've lived together before exactly. we were here. So yep. 
like maybe yeah I don't, I don't know yeah anyway and i mean when i first started seeing them i was really excited about it but i've had a bit of more of a think since and i don't and I could be wrong about this, but I don't think it's as good as what I originally thought no. because while it is great seeing a hybrid, if you think about it, there's a lot more Murray cod than trout cod out there. And if they are going to keep interbreeding, then there can't be any other result I can see than the trout cod just getting phased out. Yeah, and then having these random hybrids. And then a lot of other hybrids in other species are infertile. They're like like a mule. Yep. Like a mule yep, exactly. like infertile. So whether they're infertile or not, I don't know. It'd probably be more beneficial for the whole ecos, like the whole scenario, if they were infertile, because then you can have a hybrid cross cod and then a hybrid cross trout cod, and then you're just going to have this mixture of interbreeding, which is not good. But then again, no. if they aren't, if they, you know, if they are infertile, they the the fish are going to, you know, they're not producing fish that are going to produce more fish in terms of a pure trout cod or Murray cod. So it's not ideal. And I've got a mate from Vic, like Vic who fishes for trout and if he finds a trout with a deformity and it's kind of this, it's kind of maybe the same feeling that you're talking about with killing a deer. Like yep. he doesn't kill fish, doesn't eat them or I think he, yeah, he, I don't, he doesn't like he catches, releases everything but if they catch a trout that's deformed um, and then again, if it's under the legal limit, it's kind of illegal but most of them are over, he'll kill it just yep. for the fact of looking after the species. Yeah, so, just taking the, those genetics out of the population. I yeah, so he's ki- he kills any deformed fish. And then once when I showed him, I caught this deformed cod. I caught this, it was a Murray. It was a pure Murray, but it was really deformed. Had a real deformed head and it stunk. Like it really stunk Jeez. bad. Like it was weird. And like we let it go. Didn't think anything of it. I'm like, oh, good on him for surviving and being able to eat a lure. And then my mate was like, did you kill it? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we kill any trout that are deformed so it's kind of that's kind of a something i thought of and i don't know if i could still come to kill it but it has it has it does make sense and it does have purpose so it's a bit yeah, of yeah i completely understand i don't think i could do it myself either, no, though, either. But, but the um yeah I, I get the premise for sure mm, yeah so it's just interesting um so can you give me so a lot of the water around your way you've got flowing gorge country water there's there's not much of it down south um, there's pretty well the Bidgee. There's a couple of other smaller waterways where there's gorge. There's a lot of it up north. So there's a lot yep. of um, northern rivers have a lot of boulder gorge country. Can you give me a tip for fishing? One, just one sort of tip for fishing either that gorge country or faster flowing water or something that you've learned over years as a rule uh, about where the fish sit or uh, the way you cast or a technique. Is there something you can think of that you could share? Yeah, sure, man. So, yeah, you're right about that. The um, the Murrumbidgee, it isn't all gorge country. So, uh, that my first tip would be is to find that sort of gorge country or that that deeper, narrower, um, more bouldery um, sort of stretches. Because they're it's definitely not all the like most. That. No, it's not all like that. There are some. There's quite a lot around here that's sort of I'd call it sort of unproductive water where you're sort of um, you've got a uniform sort of width river flowing straight sandy. Uh, for long periods and and yes yeah, sandy exactly um, sandy and I mean while there's still the odd cod here and there in those places that's not really want where you want to be concentrating on so co- look for those skinnier areas look where the the river uh, you know has choke points those deep gorges um, sharp bends in the river 
Google Earth is your friend. I'll say that first of all. Like I, I live on Google Earth, man. Like I don't go anywhere without Googling Earth, Google Earthing it. Um, Google I spend Earthing hours it. And hours. Love it. That's a new term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good, good. Google Earthing, mate. Um, yeah, that's the greatest um, tool I that I think for, for, for the out, outdoorsmen in the world. Yeah. Um, and when you actually do find your your locations like that, um, uh, all the usual sort of spots like. Cod don't really like to sort of be sitting on that travelator the whole time. So um, midstream boulders that are sitting in flow, um, you'll have cod behind them. Um, any is that you find. Um, like uh, So try and find places where there's some still water or some nearly still water next to some flowing water, yeah. um, which is pretty easy on the moment. They're everywhere. And that's what I love fishing about this sort of, this sort of fishing. Like uh, in a dam, you're doing a lot of casting where you're sort of like no cast is sort of more likely than any other cast yeah, to they, catch the fish. Yeah, yeah. Like you've, you've got like a you know a millionth of a percent every time you cast in a dam or one day you connect. Whereas in the Murrumbidgee, I love the style of fishing where, oh, this cast, mate, this cast, oh, look at that spot there. And then you the know there's a fish like, there. You're, you're racing to get your little punch <laughs> in that backwater that's got that like little foam on the top. And How you know good is it? There. Yes. It's the best, is it? And yeah. then you just you're just waiting for that whack, and sometimes you don't get it, but you know there's probably a cod there. Yes. So I'd be looking. For, you look for that water that's still next to running water. Um, still deep pools are still good as well. Your big fish will hang around there during the middle of the day. I'll I probably do dredge those like big deep bouldery pools more but um as the light starts to fade and you get towards last light that's when i head to the shallower water especially to the top of pools like that and that's where you're casting around the running water um and and the heads of pools and don't be scared to go too shallow you yeah. know that if it's at the end of the day and there's a fish in that running water there it's not there to relax yeah. it's there because it wants to smash something yeah spot on i love how he talks about racing your mates to the spot i just bring back <laughs> memories i did a i did a session with my mate oh, i was five years ago and the fish on the bidgee but totally different water it was all timber sort of around yep. Wagga. And the fish were on fire. We we camped in the boat. We floated. We got dropped off and spent, I don't know, we drifted like 35Ks or something. And I've never yep. seen the fish so active. But I was driving the boat from the top and he was down the back. And we'd come along this big, long, barren stretch. And the bottom of this, this bend, there was a heap of timber. And there's one, there's this one, I can still see the log. There's one log, there's a little bit of shadow in front of it and it had a heap of foam sitting on top. And we both looked at each other and said nothing. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> I'm like, I've got an extra two and a half meters to cover. And I was getting out, I could see he was getting ready because we just knew there was a fish there. And we were miles off this show, like dumb, stupidly far away. But I thought, we both knew that we had to get a cast in first. So we're that far away. I'm like, this is dumb fish casting from this far. Like you should get in, do a short cast, bang, you know. But yep. I've launched this cast when I thought I could make the distance, but I had no choice. I had to give it a crack and drop short. And he's, and then he got the time to wait, waited, put the cast in, bam. He got this like 77 yep. minute card. Like, <laughs> you're kidding me. Yeah, it's just crazy. Oh, just bring back you memories. Swap, you, you swapped spots in the boat after that. Cause... Nah, because like, yeah, he can't drive a boat. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so he gets the advantage. I just had to work around that. It's a shame because we're floating downstream, but normally when you're driving the boat, you can put yourself in good spots. But yeah, no, nah, that's just just brings back memories that um, of those pockets behind logs or in front of structure or you just know you, the river stuff you just know don't you like you yeah 100 percent. that's why i love it man yeah it's so good so you've done a bit of trout adventure stuff too you've I've, I've seen some big are they um snowy mountains trout some of those good browns yeah uh, 
Yeah, what do you do trout-wise? Oh, not heaps, man, to be honest. Like, I'm definitely not a trout junkie. I mean, I've done plenty, especially growing up. You know, I probably cut my teeth on trout fishing. I would have to suggest more than anything else. Like, my first 100 fish on lures were probably nearly all trout, really. But these days, um, uh, nothing against them, but they just don't do it for me like some of the natives do, to be honest. But um, I will always head down to the sort of Yukonbean or uh, streams flowing into those lakes, Yukonbean, Tantangra, those lakes, and have a bit of a a potter around. Here there, yep. Um, you know, drifting some glow bugs or throwing some sort of bigger sort of trout lures around and trying to get those those stonkers during spawning season. But um, yeah, it's definitely not my favourite sort of fishing. I just um, yeah, just I try to avoid the crowds and you can't really avoid them down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about the Macquarie perch that you? I saw a photo just the other day of some mackers. That's good to see some quality fish like that, mate. There's not if, many um, left. Yeah, mate, there's a couple of spots near Canberra where they definitely have some strongholds left. That's cool. I haven't um I hadn't seen them for quite a while and I was talking to dad about going fishing for the afternoon and we were wondering what should we do? Should we go to Googong and just smack a couple of yellows or something? And I said, No, nah, let's just go back to this spot and see if the Macquarie perch are still there. There's a few trout around as well. So um we went back there, mate. They were thick. Really? Um, like I'm telling you, they we would have seen a hundred of them. I don't I don't know anything about Macquarie perch and whether they're in their spawning um, spawning mode right now, but I'm I'm guessing they are because they were everywhere. Um, so it was really good to see. I caught I think it was two in two casts, and then I sort of just packed the rod up. I was like, no, nah, let's not muck around with these guys. So we sort of just walked up the river, had a look at them, but. Um, Mate, dumbest fish in the world. Like, absolutely love them, but you can see why they'd get overfished. Like, the two that I caught probably ate the lure probably 12 times on each cast. Sort of no ate way. It, it ate it, and they didn't get hooked. And they ate it again, then ate it again, and ate it again. And I was like, is this guy serious? Um, and even even spooked-wise, like, we were walking right up to fish and sort of, like, nearly touching them on the tail and stuff like that. So um, you can see how they can definitely be taken advantage of. But it was really good to see, yeah, definitely. Wow. So um, That's cool, yeah. eh? Sounds like a dumb fish, though. Yeah, well, look, they, they, I mean, I don't, I don't know. They maybe might, they've got different, yeah. maybe because they're spawning or something like that, they're sort of a bit clouded in their, um, their decision-making or something. But um, it really was good to see. So there certainly is still a few around, mate. Yeah, that's what I just wanted to ask you, just because, like, they're not only fish you target, but obviously I just wanted, I was curious because they were some, that was a big Macquarie perch um, that, that you had there. And, and it's good that, you know, they're in pockets because there's not many left. And I know one stronghold was Manus Creek over near Tumba. Um, yep, yep, another one. But they, I don't know if any survived. They did They did some electrofishing after the fires, but that was black sludge running through that valley after the fires. So, yeah, it's, that's not what we need from. But I know there's a fair few in Dartmouth as well. But that's good to see uh, some of them around, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. I, I sort of enjoyed the experience. I'll probably leave them for a few more years and then maybe five years' time I'll go back there and just see if they're still there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What um, What's your – is your favourite species to target, Barra? What is your favourite species? Uh, what is yeah, your favourite species? Top, yeah, it's definitely Barra, mate. Um, uh, like I said, ever since I caught one in Weeper when I was, I don't know, probably 12 or 13, I was just absolutely obsessed with them. Um, so, yeah, Barra junglies and Murray Cod for sure, but Barra are number one. They're just, you can't, you couldn't, you couldn't manufacture a better fish. They look amazing. They grow big. They're aggressive. They jump. They fight. They taste good. Like, you, you, if, you, if you wrote the script for a perfect fish, for me, it would be barramundi. Yeah. So what? What is it about? Because a lot of cod anglers, right? 
they might not have ever experienced Barra. That's me. I've never I've never caught a Barra. I had one crack, yep. I think. But I truly love cod. Now I did a north. I did a trip up north, um, offshore. I, I give me a cod any day over. I caught Spanish mackerel. Caught like a meter twenty Jew, black yep. Jew. Caught coral trout, um, red emperor. Maybe it was a style of fishing we were doing, but it just wasn't for me. like it was great fun. But if I had to pick a trip, I'd chase cod. And it just—it's just because just I've grown up with it, I imagine. But how do you, for someone who's never caught a barrel, we obviously know what they're like. Is it? Is it? I'm just trying to work out what is something that you could tell. I know you just mentioned everything they do, mm-hmm. but if someone who's just fish for cod and they want to go get that barrel, what is it about the barrel? Is it the hit? Is it the fight? The difference from cod is what I'm getting at, and what makes them this elite sports fish. So in some ways they are very similar to cod. I mean, but, you can even see just by the way they look, their heads, they're, they're a similar body fish to cod. They're just slimmer and a bit more athletic. They feed the same way. They buff the same way. You can watch their mouths open the exact same way as a Murray cod. Um, they're just not as lazy. They're just not as lazy, mate. So that's the, that's the difference. They, they, you have to use a few different... They won't just sit in the snag. They won't just sit behind their rock. Um, it is a little bit uh, hard to sort of go into Barra only because they live in so many different environments, like from all the way up into like tiny little billabongs where, um, you know, there, there might be only, you know, a thousand litres of water in this little pool over the um, the wet season where they're living under the lily pads all the way down to through the tidal rivers um, to the rocky headlands of northern Australia out to the ocean. And then you have to start on your dams as well. Yeah. But... Um, they do hit really hard. Um, they fight really hard. They're one of the most acrobatic fish that I've ever sort of laid a hook into. Some barrel that I've caught spend no time under the water. They just tail walk the entire time, which is awesome. That's cool. Um, and, yeah, no one that I've ever seen catch a barra has sort of like um, – Been disappointed. <laughs> no, nah, man. They're just an amazing fish, and they look so great. But you can just catch them in so many different places up there. They're very accessible as well to anyone who lives up there. And now because of the um, – the onset of the barra dams and their success, um, they, they, it is relatively easy to get within sort of, you know, get yourself within casting difference of some trophy fish. So if someone's heading, if someone's never chased them before, what's one tip that you could give them? They know how to catch cod, right? What's one tip you give for barra and what's one area that would probably be a good sort of starting spot to chase them if you're heading up north? Yep, so I'll, I'll break it down into two two categories only because um yeah you've got your you've got your wild barra and you've got your damn barra same as cod but uh but i'd say it's a bit different so if you just for uh the cheapest easiest way to get stuck into a barra i'd head up to the barra dams for sure so hit uh dams like awunga kinchin peter faust they've all got lots of barra in them that stop really well and um while they can be fickle um i've done a few trips to the barra dams and managed to work them out fairly quickly every single time um you're looking for similar sort of stuff as as cod um watch your sounder uh, points especially they love points and they will move around a little bit more than what cod do for sure so especially during those low light periods if you're confident on a point you've seen some bait on it spot lock a casting distance from that point and keep keep casting and because they'll swim through they will swim through yeah i know cod sort of do that but these guys will swim in bigger packs and they will come through more regularly than what um cod will now if you want to go chase some wild 
barramundi that's where i think it, it gets a bit more difficult certainly there's there's lots more of them but then you've got to start wondering about your tides and that sort of stuff but um, pick a creek um, on a dropping tide that you know you've got barry in look for some little drains and um, that's probably the easiest way that i would describe it any creek that have got barra um, with the water dropping You've got little bait in all those little drains. They're trying to stay up in those drains for as long as they can. And once you get to that bottom third of the tide and those um, drains are pouring out little bait fish, just bounce from drain to drain to drain, casting shallow diving lures. Uh, that can be really fun for um, trying to get your numbers up on Barra um, in wild rivers. Cool. That's a real good summary. That was really good. That's perfect. That's a good sort of starting point sort of with those two scenarios, which I like that you did. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, what's your most memorable catch? I've got a couple more questions. We're nearly coming to the end of this, and it's been yeah, no, easy. I've got yeah, so many, so, yeah, I know. There's so many things I could ask you, and I love the whole just lifestyle that you live. But well, do you have one most memorable catch? It's going to be difficult, as difficult as for you, I reckon. But do you have yeah. even if it's just one? Oh, I don't know. Even if it's maybe maybe break it into one experience, just anything can be hunting bushwalking, fishing, whatever, one experience and then one particular fish. Yep. So for me, it actually probably isn't that hard. Like I said, I think 12 years old was when I caught my first barramundi in Weeper and I was dead set in love with them ever since then. Probably from about oh, 16 maybe, I had the guy in my head when, you know, reading magazines and stuff that I wanted a metery. I'm never really like one of these big sort of like measurement blokes for goals and stuff like that, but I was like, no, nah, I want a metery. Barra. So I went up to Darwin. Yeah, metery Barra, sorry. Yeah. Um, up to Darwin. And, mate, like I said, for that last probably one year of my time in Darwin, I was out like three nights a week on the Daly River, throwing friggin' big plastics, throwing fizzes, throwing everything I could. Couldn't crack the meter. Got quite a few into the um, 90s. Came back to Canberra, still did trips up there ever since then. Went went back to Darwin, um, went to um, King Ash Bay, did a lot of trips to King Ash Bay, which is a really awesome spot um, for a variety of fish and had some uh, big bar experiences up there. Um, and it just wasn't happening for me. Like, I, I, you know how some people catch it, but some people will talk about catching a metery on their first trip up there. Yep. Freaking hear about it all the time. And <laughs> I thought... I thought I deserved it. Like, I've, I've caught some fish that I don't think I've deserved in the past, you know? Like, I caught, like, my first metery Murray cod after, like, fishing for him for not much time at all. I don't think I deserved that fish, but I've been fishing for Barra for 15 years by now, and um, I thought I really deserved one. Yeah. And um, me and the old man were up at um, King Ash Bay, um, which is a small area in the Gulf of Carpentaria, fishing a little offshoot of the MacArthur River, and we got ourselves... Um, locked into a low tide creek that we knew we'd gonna to have to spend a few hours in and um the fishing was either going to be amazing or it was going to be crap so and wait you got out. locked in so you're saying low tide dropped and you couldn't get out yep so that's sort of a it, it is a legitimate technique that a lot of people use up there like because you will get you will um find a lot of creeks you can't get out of once they drop behind below a certain yep. um height and then the, the, the creek will keep dropping but if you choose the right creek and you're in a bit of a pool, you can be locked in with like a plethora of fish and it can just be nuts. Yeah. So that's sort of what we were going at in this spot. But it's always a hit and miss. You can either get locked in with fish or you can get locked in with nothing. And then yeah. you've got a lot, long, hot wait in the sun with nothing going on. So we were sitting <laughs> That's there a big a risk, eh? Yeah, it is a big risk, man. But I've had some red hot sessions like that. So I think it's worth it. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of sitting there and um, 
having a cast here and there, then sitting back down, then having a cast. And I stood up and um, I was just having a flick at this uh, little drain in this um, low-tide sort of lock-in pool. And um, just to my left, out of nowhere, just goes to this monster of a barra. And I nearly crapped my dad. You saw it? Yeah, just saw it. Just like you could tell that it wasn't in like a crazy feeding mode. Nothing. It was just sulking along in the blazing hot sun. So I thought, absolutely no chance this guy's going to take anything because I've seen Barrow like this before and he just wasn't. He just didn't look like he was in a feeding mode. So I've clogged me gold. So, wait, you, so where was he? He was like beside you guys and Yep, so sort of probably shallow? only probably... Yep, really shallow. So probably about 110 he would have been. And I flicked me, um, I think it was a gold bomber, right in front of his nose, nose, twitch, twitch. And usually when a barra or, as you know, a cod or anything hits it, boom, they sort of just light up and smash it. This barramundi took my lure in the most slow motion way I've ever seen. It was like he was just picking a cherry gently off a cherry tree. Could you just see it? Yeah, he could see Yeah, I watched it all in front of my eyes. No he way. just sort of... He just slowly opened up, and then he didn't. He didn't do those one of those inhales or big boofs or anything like that. He just slowly just closed his mouth on my lure, and because there was no weight behind what he was doing, I had to bloody strike, and I struck hard, and that's when all hell broke loose. And I knew I was onto my metery. Fifteen years of making, <laughs> here we go. I've got this fella, and he's taken to the air, and all hell was breaking loose and everything like that. Dad, I've finally got him. I've got him. I've shit my pants. My knees are shaking. Anyway, long story short. Got him under control, got him into the net. Oh, you bloody beauty. And I'm staring at him. Here he is, one-tenth of chrome barramundi. Oh, Dad, you leave him in the water. We don't want to hurt this fish. Leave him in the water. I'll grab the measuring tape and um, and the camera. So I've turned around, grabbed the camera, grabbed the measuring tape, turned back, and I can still see it in, <laughs> in like, HD vision. I turned back towards the fish. I saw him thrash in the net, rip straight through this net no. that we found had been like, you know, sitting in the sun for a bit too long and had a few little tears in it. Ripped straight through the net. My first thought was, okay, this is bad, but he's still connected to my lure at least. I'll do something with it. I'll fight him through the net. And as he's turned and ripped through the net, he's he's pulled both trebles out of the lure. The lure has flung back and just for a final insult, slapped me in the side of the face. No and, way. And, and, and that was my my lifelong dream fish just powering away into the depths. You're kidding. Now, like, I've lost some fish before, but, mate, it was, oh. it, it was so long in the making and I thought it was done. I mean, it was in the net. I, I, I couldn't do any more than that. But, um, yeah, so that was my dream fish, busted through the net and, and back out. Um, but your original question was, greatest catch so fast forward a couple of years uh, last year i was up in north queensland it still hadn't happened i think my pb was 98 still doesn't that suck that. though like you had it in the net and it was some in the people net, would count that but it doesn't count until you take a photo and measure no nope, like, no nope, i don't know you I mean yep exactly i've had right, that happen with was... a cod too and i still go that's the one we lost even though it was in the net <laughs> Oh. Yep, exactly. So, Gosh. mate, um, yeah, I don't think I said a word for honestly like two weeks. No. Like, I think I was just, I just went into some dark, oh, dark place. No. Yeah, so keep um, going. Well, you, okay, a couple so of years fast later. Forward, yeah, fast forward a few years. This was just last year. So, I was in the middle of a, um, it was a, a trip where I was fishing for jungle perch for a few days up north. Then um, we we're going to hit Peter Faust on some good moons on, on the way back. And we had a bit of an interim period of, I think it was two days, uh, where we sort of had nothing to do. But I was um, I was still in fishing mode. 
road, so I wanted to fish. Yep. So um, we were staying at um, uh, Proserpine, which is the town right near Peter Faust, just getting ready for these these good moons. And um, uh, the Proserpine River was just next door, which is is not really a well-known fishing destination. It's just a small tidal river. And um, we decided to head down there for a flick. Um, we were really chasing blue salmon that um, were sort of running at the time. So um, I had, um, I think it was a, it's called a Zeric Live Prawn. It's yep. like a... You know the one, yeah. Uh, sort of a weedless, you know, 10, 10 centimeter long prawn on plastic. Uh, 20, yep. Yeah, plastic, and uh, we were just flicking um, this one bend of the river, and we'd actually had caught a couple of barramundi, which I was excited about because I wasn't expecting them. Um, some of those Queensland rivers can be really fickle. They're not like the NT ones, which have just got a lot of barra. Sometimes in Queensland, they can be hard to to uh, catch. Right. And um, we we caught a couple of barra by then. Um, got smoked by a couple of I think sharks that have like taken a couple of small barra off our um, um off our lines anyway. And um, I hooked up to this thing um, that immediately took to the air. And oh, here, here it was again. This one was a meter twenty. And so, so, so you saw myself. it jump and straight away you're like, that thing's massive. Straight away, straight away. So I think my, I, rec- I reckon we're fishing about, uh, I was probably about two meter deep, sort of like um, corner of this river with a few snags around. Um, prawny hit, they're only a sort of slow sinking lure, so he would have been right near the surface. Smashed it, took straight to the air, classic barramundi, and just started tail walking. And mate, he was all of a meter 20. And so my knees started shaking again. I had flashbacks and everything like that. He was racing towards snags and I was trying to stop him. And I was completely undergunned because I wasn't fishing for barra. Usually if I fish for barra, I'll have at least 60 pound leader because they do have some pretty tough um, sort of um, razor sharp uh, sort of gill covers that can uh, slit your leader pretty quick. So what were you running? And, um, so th- I was running 15-pound braid no. and 30-pound and uh, leader. And I was kidding. like, no, of, of all times, I'm hooking now. So anyway, um, long story, I managed to get the second half of it on film and you don't. You, you can tell that I'm not enjoying myself. I mean, nah. you know, these, these are the times we fish for, but you can't enjoy it. No. Right? <laughs> because I'm just waiting for that thing to either ping, pop out, or something else to go wrong. Yep. Managed to get him both side after a hell of a fight, and um, this time, all good. The net held up. <laughs> managed to get him on the boat, got him measured, 118, and... Um, yeah, that's definitely my greatest fishing memory, only because it took me that long to do it. Other people have caught a fish like that on their first trip. For me, it took probably 17 years of actually fishing no for them. So, yeah, but it was worth it in the end, mate. I wouldn't have had it any other way. That is so cool. Like, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. And like you said, the fight, it's not enjoyable on a big fish. I feel the no. same with cod. I'm happy yep. for it to come in that <laughs> quick because you just, yeah, you just never know what's going to happen, especially with the exactly. barra would be worse than cod too because cod don't play up, but barra, yeah. man. Yeah, they certainly do. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. Meet, and that's a good metery too. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to never never beat it. If I do, I do. I'm not going to stop trying, but um, at least I've got that monkey off my back, mate. Like, you know, that fish has swum in my thoughts and dreams that many times. I just needed to see it in the flesh. Yeah. And, um, you know, I stopped myself going to the barra dams beforehand and everything because I, I knew I'd probably get one in the dams and I just wanted that wild fish. It, yeah. it, it wasn't going to count. It was from the dam. I don't know why. I just had it in my head. It had to be a wild fish. And so for it to come from such an innocuous location while I, while I barely knew they even sort of, you know, they existed there that big um it was definitely a dream come true and it was right out of left field (laughs) yeah it always seems to be right out of left field doesn't it like not always but i've had that experience with cod with big cod a lot of times you like you work that hard for one and it just doesn't happen and then when you sort of just like 
you know, chasing the smaller ones or yep. just going out for a bit of fun and then it just happens. Yeah, I'm sure it won't be the last either. No, exactly, exactly. Mate, I really appreciate uh, your time for this episode. I hope the listeners have really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Um, I could talk to you about stories all day. Um, I know we talked basically about your whole, pretty well the best word for it is adventure as life. Um, And it's good that you're doing something you enjoy because I know a lot of people just get stuck in the rut of life, um, going around in circles and getting out occasionally when they can because so many other things going on. But outdoors and adventure and fishing and hunting is so important to you and you're sort of making sure that it's part of your life every week pretty much, which is awesome, which is really awesome. Can you give me one last or give the listeners one last word of advice on life? Because I feel like you've got enjoying life pretty damn pat um by the sounds of it is there is there a i know it's a a weird question but is there a lesson or if say for example let's put it this way let's say for example everything you've talked about everyone you've talked to all the the things you've shared all the things you've written um everything sort of has disappeared right and you could leave one last lesson for everyone to go off um and it can be about life not just fishing not just hunting just about life is there one lesson you could give for people, yeah, definitely, man. I mean, I know that it's a, it's probably a well sort of, um, it's sort of a well-known saying, but I say it all the time to my mates and stuff. You can't do it from the couch. Like that's a big one for me. There's that many days that I, I'm lazy like the rest of us, or you feel down sometimes, or you couldn't be bothered, or the weather's crap, or whatever. So it's just easier to stay home, or or or, or don't get up to that alarm, or whatever. But when I think about every single time that I've had an amazing experience that I'll never forget, it's always when I, I push through that or I make that decision to go, nah, stuff it. I won't catch one if I sit here. And then you go out on those days. That's when it happens. So if you ever have that feeling of, should I go out? Should I walk that 10 Ks? Should I bother? It's pissing down rain. It's freaking 3 a.m. in the morning. Do I really want to get up and drive two hours to that fishing spot or that hunting spot? Or for whatever your your passion is in life, do it. Because that's the day, the memory that will will be forever, never forgotten is going to happen. So that's probably what I would say. Love it, mate. Really appreciate it, Matt. Thanks uh, for coming on and that's a great lesson to finish on. I really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with your trips over the next couple of weeks. What are you doing? Chasing cod, hunting? This afternoon, plan? mate. This afternoon. First cod, first cod f- fishing session of the season. So, mate, I'll probably wait a couple more hours and um, I'll head out to the Bidgey and see what I can do. Nice. Good luck. Good luck. Um, thanks for coming on. And what you have uh, Instagram. Where? How can? What's your tag that people can follow you on Instagram? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, mate, um, Skarupa underscore M, S-K-O-R-U-P-A underscore M. That's the Instagram. That's sort of where I put up a little bit of content. And um, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It was really fun chatting to you, mate. I appreciate it. No, thank you very much. I'll also put uh, the link to your Instagram in the show notes on our website. So if anyone wants to check it out there, you can do that. But uh, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it, mate. Good luck with the COD, the Savi. And um, yeah, I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks very much. Good chatting, mate. Good chatting, mate. 
Now, if that doesn't get you excited to get out there, go fishing, hunting, explore the great outdoors, I don't know what will. I absolutely loved that chat with Matt. One of my favorites yet, even though I've got so many favorites, Matt was just so easy to talk to. He was just so excited telling his stories. And I know there wasn't a whole heap of fishing tip content or technique content in that. I feel it had a lot of really good lessons and it was also a great bit of entertainment hearing Matt stories. I myself was keen to hear about, you know, the adventures he goes on and those things he hunts and I hope you guys were intrigued and enjoyed the last hour and a half listening to the podcast episode. Once again, I want to send out a massive thank you to Matt Scrooper. Uh, Yeah, it was a really, really enjoyable chat and it's just great to hear from someone who's so passionate and just a great Aussie bloke and I know there's so many other people out there just like Matt who I'm going to be very keen to interview in the future but I was privileged to have Matt on for episode 50. And once again, I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to go follow Matt on Instagram and also take a screenshot of yourself listening to this podcast on your phone now. Whack it up on your Instagram story. Tag Matt and myself so that we know you are listening. And also, don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Now, guys, you can submit listener questions for our listener questions episode where I sit down and answer your questions and you can do that inside the social fishing account. You can jump on the website, create a free account and submit your listener questions to us. And also inside that free account, you will get access to the Freshwater mini series. Now, that has been out for a little while now and many of you will know that the golden perch part was still coming soon and I'm excited to announce that it is now out. So part three of the Freshwater mini series is now available. It is the golden perch part where we show you techniques, tips for chasing golden perch in rivers, dams and also a bit of action as well. So if you guys have been waiting for that or if you don't even have any idea what I'm talking about but you want to go watch some fishing stuff, head over to socialfishing.com.au, jump on, create a free account and check out the Freshwater mini series and the All of them are up. So part one through to four are now available and all completed. And last of all, I want to send out a massive thank you to everyone listening who is a social fishing member. Guys, the membership is going incredibly well and we're continuing to grow it. And because of your support, we're able to get more content to you guys. So not only this podcast, but all the content inside the social fishing membership. There is so much involved in there. We do a monthly live Q&A. The one I just did was with Colby Lesko and the questions and the things that Colby we talked about were incredible, including a technique that he uses to catch his big fish on big river systems. Uh, There's a whole heap of awesome information in the membership. There's maps and also those reports, which I was talking about before. So those reports, they go up monthly, monthly reports written by local anglers to help you guys catch fish. The social fishing platform, the membership platform, we're going to build to be the biggest freshwater fishing educational platform available for you in Australia for targeting those freshwater fish. And I'm excited for what is ahead. So if you want to join in on this movement that we are going to create and become a better angler, make sure you check that out and you can learn more about that at socialfishing.com.au. Guys, uh, enjoy the rest of your day, whether you're sitting down uh, listening to this podcast on an afternoon or heading off on a trip in the morning. I hope you get out there and catch some good fish and if you're not pumped for your next fishing session after listening to this with Matt, I don't know what will get you excited. But anyway, guys, that's enough from me and 
and I'll be talking to you in the next podcast coming up soon. The next one will be a Go Fish and Gamby special podcast edition, which we will bring out not far before the Go Fish and Gamby competition. So I'll be down at Go Fish, and I'm sure a lot of other people will be getting down there and getting very excited for that event. So we're going to be bringing out a Go Fish and Gamby special where we will be talking about the event tips for fishing the lake and also a bit of information on that competition. So that'll be an exciting podcast that will be out in the next week or two leading up to the Go Fish and Gamby event, which is the 25th to the 28th of March. Fingers crossed coronavirus doesn't get in the way of it this year uh, and hopefully it becomes a massive event and it can all go ahead and someone can win at the $80,000 for the biggest cod. But that's something else. Uh, we'll be talking about that in the next edition. I hope you enjoyed this one with Matt Scrooper. Get out there, guys. Go catch some fish. And you've been listening to The Social Fishing Podcast.